Chapter 3, Part 4 of The American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 3, The Period of Growth. Part 4, Loanwords. The Indians of the New West, it would seem, had little to add to the contributions already made to the American vocabulary by the Algonquins of the Northeast. The American people, by the beginning of the second quarter of the 19th century, knew almost all they were destined to know of the Aborigine, and they had names for all the new objects that he had brought to their notice and for most of his peculiar implements and ceremonies. A few translated Indian terms, example, squaw man, big chief, great white father, and happy hunting ground, represent the meager fresh stock that the Western pioneers got from him. Of more importance was the suggestive and indirect effect of his polysynthetic dialects, and particularly of his vivid proper names, example, rain in the face, young man afraid of his wife, and voice like thunder. These names, and other word phrases like them, made an instant appeal to American humor, and were extensively imitated in popular slang. One of the surviving coinages of that era is Old Stick in the Mud, which Farmer and Henley note as having reached England by 1823. Contact with the French in Louisiana and along the Canadian border, and with the Spanish in Texas and further west, brought many more new words. From the Canadian French, as we have already seen, prairie, bateau, portage, and rapids had been borrowed during colonial days. To these French contributions, bayou, picayune, levee, chute, Butte, crevasse, and lagnap were now added, and probably also shanty and canuck. The use of brave to designate an Indian warrior, almost universal until the close of the Indian wars, was also of French origin. From the Spanish, once the Mississippi was crossed, and particularly after the Mexican War in 1846, there came a swarm of novelties many of which have remained firmly embedded in the language. Among them were numerous names of strange objects, lariat, lasso, ranch, loco, weed, mustang, sombrero, canyon, desperado, poncho, chaparral, corral, bronco, plaza, peon, cayuse, burro, Mesa, Tornado, Sierra, and Adobe. To them, as soon as gold was discovered, were added Bonanza, Eldorado, Placer, and Vigilante. Cinch was borrowed from the Spanish Cincha in the early Texas days, though its figurative use did not come in until much later. Ante, the poker term, though the etymologists point out its obvious origin in the Latin, probably came into American from the Spanish. 
Thornton's first example of its use in its current sense is dated 1857, but Bartlett reported it in the form of anti in 1848. Coyote came from the Mexican dialect of Spanish. Its first parent was the Aztec Coyotl. Tamale had a similar origin, and so did frijole and tomato. None of these is good Spanish. As usual, derivatives quickly followed the newcomers, among them peonage, bronco buster, ranchmen, and ranch house, and the verbs to ranch, to lasso, to corral, to ante up, and to cinch. To vamos, from the Spanish vamos, let us go, came in at the same time. So did sabe, so did gazabo. This was also the period of the first great immigrations, and the American people now came into contact on a large scale with peoples of divergent race, particularly Germans, Irish Catholics from the south of Ireland, the Irish of colonial days were descendants of Cromwell's army and came from the north of Ireland, and on the Pacific coast, Chinese. So early as the 20s, the immigration to the United States reached 25,000 in a year. In 1824, the legislature of New York, in alarm, passed a restrictive act. Footnote. Most of the provisions of this act, however, were later declared unconstitutional. Several subsequent acts met the same fate. End footnote. The know-nothing movement of the 50s need not concern us here. Suffice it to recall that the immigration of 1845 passed the 100,000 mark, and that that of 1854 came within sight of 500,000. These new Americans, most of them Germans and Irish, did not all remain in the East. A great many spread through the West and Southwest with the other pioneers. Their effect upon the language was not large, perhaps, but it was still very palpable, and not only in the vocabulary. Of words of German origin, sauerkraut and noodle, as we have seen, had come in during the colonial period, apparently through the so-called Pennsylvania Dutch, i.e. a mixture, much debased, of the German dialects of Switzerland, Swabia, and the Palatinate. The new immigrants now contributed pretzel, pumpernickel, hausfrau, lager beer, pinochle, wienerwurst, dumb for stupid, frankfurter, bock beer, schnitzel, Laborwurst, Blutwurst, Rathskeller, Schweitzer, cheese, Delicatessen, Hamburger, i.e. steak, Kindergarten, and Katzenjammer. Footnote. The majority of these words, it will be noted, relate to eating and drinking. They mirror the profound effect of German immigration upon American drinking habits and the American cuisine. It is a curious fact that loan words seldom represent the higher aspirations of the creditor nation. French and German have borrowed from English not words of lofty significance, but such terms as 
beefsteak, roast beef, pudding, grog, jockey, tourist, sport, five o'clock tea, cocktail, and sweepstakes. The contributions of England to European civilization, as tested by the English words in continental languages, says L. P. Smith, are not generally of a kind to cause much national self-congratulation. Nor would a German, I dare say, be very proud of the German contributions to American. End footnote. From them, in all probability, there also came two very familiar Americanisms, loafer and bum. The former, according to the standard dictionary, is derived from the German laufen. Another authority says that it originated in a German mispronunciation of lover, i.e. as loafer. Thornton shows that the word was already in common use in 1835. Bum was originally bummer, and apparently derives from the German bummler. Footnote. Thornton offers examples of this form ranging from 1856 to 1885. During the Civil War, the word acquired the special meaning of looter. The Southerners thus applied it to Sherman's men. Here is a popular rhyme that survived until the early 90s. Isidore, pisht, pisht, watch de stor, pisht, pisht, while I catch the bummer, what stole the suit of clothes? Bummelzug is common German slang for slow train. End footnote. Both words have produced derivatives. Loaf, noun, to loaf, corner loafer, common loafer, to bum, bum adjective, and bummery, not to mention on the bum. Loafer has migrated in England, but bum is still unknown there in the American sense. In English, indeed, bum is used to designate an unmentionable part of the body, and is thus not employed in polite discourse. Another example of debased German is offered by the American Chris Kringle. It is from Christkindlein, or Christkindl, and properly designates, of course, not the patron saint of Christmas, but the child in the manger. A German friend tells me that the form Chris Kringle, which is that given in the standard dictionary, and the form Chris Kingle, which is that most commonly used in the United States, are both quite unknown in Germany. Here, obviously, we have an example of a loan word in decay. Whole phrases have gone through the same process. For example, nix com eros, from nichts kommt heraus, and raus mit ihm, from heraus mit ihm. These phrases, like wie geht's and ganz gut, are familiar to practically all Americans, no matter how complete their ignorance of correct German. Most of them know, too, the meaning of Gesundheit, Kummel, Seidel, Wanderlust, Stein, Speck, Menachor, Schutzenfest, Sangefest, Turnverein, Hock, Yodel, Zweibach, and Zwei, as in Zweibier. I have found Schnitz, Schnitz, in town topics. 
Prosit is in all American dictionaries. Footnote. Nevertheless, when I once put it into a night letter, a Western Union office refused to accept it, the rules requiring all night letters to be in plain English. Meanwhile, the English have borrowed it from American, and it is actually in the Oxford Dictionary. End footnote. Bauer, as used in cards, is an Americanism derived from the German Bauer, meaning the jack. The exclamation, ouch, is classed as an Americanism by Thornton, and he gives an example dated 1837. The New English Dictionary refers it to the German, ouch, and Thornton says that it may have come across with the Dunkers or the Mennonites. Ouch is not heard in English, save in the sense of a clasp or buckle set with precious stones. Noosh. And even in that sense, it is archaic. Scheister is very probably German also. Thornton has traced it back to the 50s. Footnote. The word is not in the Oxford Dictionary, but Castle gives it and says that it is German and an Americanism. The Standard Dictionary does not give its etymology. Thornton's first example, dated 1856, shows a variant spelling, S-H-U-Y-S-T-E-R, thus indicating that it was then recent. All subsequent examples show the present spelling. It is to be noted that the suffix S-T-E-R is not uncommon in English, and that it usually carries a deprecatory significance, as in trickster, punster, gamester, etc. End footnote. Rumdum is grounded upon the meaning of dumb borrowed from the German. It is not listed in the English slang dictionaries. Footnote. The use of dumb for stupid is widespread in the United States. Dumbhead, obviously from the German Dummkopf, appears in a list of Kansas words collected by Judge J.C. Ruppenthal of Russell, Kansas. It is also noted in Nebraska and the Western Reserve, and is very common in Pennsylvania. Urgucken is also on the Kansas list of Judge Ruppenthal. End footnote. Bristed says that the American meaning of wagon, which indicates almost any four-wheeled, horse-drawn vehicle in this country, but only the very heaviest in England, was probably influenced by the German wagen. He also says that the American use of hold on for stop was suggested by the German halt an, and White says that the substitution of standpoint for point of view long opposed by all purists, was first made by an American professor who sought an anglicized form of the German Standpunkt. The same German influence may be behind the general facility with which American forms compound nouns. In most other languages, for example, Latin and French, the process is rare, and even English lags far behind American. But in German, it is almost unrestricted. It is, says L.P. Smith, a great step in advance toward that ideal language in which meaning is expressed not by terminations, but by the simple method of word position. 
The immigrants from the south of Ireland, during the period under review, exerted an influence upon the language that was vastly greater than that of the Germans, both directly and indirectly, but their contributions to the actual vocabulary were probably less. They gave American, indeed, relatively few new words. Perhaps shillelagh, colleen, spalpeen, smithereens, and poteen exhaust the unmistakably Gaelic list. Lollapalooza is also probably an Irish loanword, though it is not Gaelic. It apparently comes from alley fuzi, a Mayo provincialism signifying a sturdy fellow. Alle fuzi, in its turn, comes from the French allez fusil, meaning forward the muskets, a memory, according to P. W. Joyce, of the French landing at Killala in 1798. Such phrases as erin go bra and such expletives as begob and begori may perhaps be added. They have got into American, though they are surely not distinctive Americanisms but of far more importance than these few contributions to the vocabulary were certain speech habits that the Irish brought with them, habits of pronunciation, of syntax, and even of grammar. These habits were, in part, the fruit of efforts to translate the idioms of Gaelic into English, and, in part, borrowings from the English of the age of James I. The latter preserved by Irish conservatism in speech. Footnote. Our people, says Dr. Joyce, are very conservative in retaining old customs and forms of speech. Many words, accordingly, that are discarded as old-fashioned or dead and gone in England are still flourishing, alive and well in Ireland. They represent the classical English of Shakespeare's time. End footnote came into contact in America with habits surviving, with more or less change, from the same time, and so gave those American habits an unmistakable reinforcement. The Yankees, so to speak, had lived down such Jacobian pronunciations as tay for tea and deceive for deceive, and these forms on Irish lips struck them as uncouth and absurd, but they still clung in their common speech to such forms as hist for hoist, bile for boil, chaw for chew, jine for join. Footnote. Pope rhymed join with mine, divine, and line. Dryden rhymed toil with smile. William Kenrick, in 1773, seems to have been the first English lexicographer to denounce this pronunciation. Tay survived in England until the second half of the 18th century. Then it fell into disrepute, and certain purists, among them Lord Chesterfield, attempted to change the E-A sound to E-E in all words, including even great. End footnote. Sass for sauce, height for height, and wrench for rinse, and lep for leap, 
and the employment of precisely the same forms by the thousands of Irish immigrants who spread through the country undoubtedly gave them a certain support, and so protected them, in a measure, from the assault of the purists. And the same support was given to drowned for drowned, once it for once, catch for catch, again for against, and honorary for ordinary. Certain usages of Gaelic, carried over into the English of Ireland, fell upon fertile soil in America. One was the employment of the definite article before nouns, as in French and German. An Irishman does not say, I am good at Latin, but I am good at the Latin. In the same way, an American does not say, I had measles, but I had the measles. There is again the use of the prefix a before various adjectives and gerunds, as in a going and a riding. This usage, of course, is native to English, as a board and a foot demonstrate, but it is much more common in the Irish dialect on account of the influence of the parallel Gaelic form, as in a-n-ace, a near, and it is also much more common in American. There is, yet again, a use of intensifying suffixes, often set down as characteristically American, which was probably borrowed from the Irish. Examples are no siree and yes indeedy, and the later kiddo and skidoo. As Joyce shows, such suffixes in Irish English tend to become whole phrases. The Irishman is almost incapable of saying plain yes or no. He must always add some extra and gratuitous asseveration. Footnote. Amusing examples are to be found in Don Levy's Irish Catechism. To the question, is the sun God? The answer is not simply yes, but yes, certainly he is. And to the question, will God reward the good and punish the wicked? The answer is, certainly there is no doubt he will. End footnote. The American is in like case. His speech bristles with intensives. Bet your life, not on your life. Well, I guess, and no mistake, and so on. The Irish extravagance of speech struck a responsive chord in the American heart. The American borrowed not only occasional words, but whole phrases, and some of them have become thoroughly naturalized. Joyce, indeed, shows the Irish origin of scores of locutions that are now often mistaken for Native Americanisms. For example, great shakes, dead as an intensive, thank you kindly, to split one's sides, i.e. laughing, and the tune the old cow died of, not to mention many familiar similes and proverbs. Certain Irish pronunciations, Gaelic rather than archaic English, got into American during the 19th century. Among them, one recalls Bahoy, which entered our political slang in the middle 40s and survived into our own time. Again, there is the very characteristic American word ballyhoo, signifying the harangue of a ballyhoo man, 
or spieler, that is, barker, before a cheap show, or by metaphor, any noisy speech. It is from Ballyhooley, the name of a village in Cork, once notorious for its brawls. Finally, there is shebang. Chaldevere derives it from the French caban, but it seems rather more likely that it is from the Irish shebeen. The propagation of Irishisms in the United States was helped during many years by the enormous popularity of various dramas of Irish peasant life, particularly those of Dion Boussicot. So recently as 1910, an investigation made by the dramatic mirror showed that some of his pieces, notably Kathleen Mavernine, The Colleen Bawn, and The Chagron, were still among the favorites of popular audiences. Such plays at one time were presented by dozens of companies, and a number of Irish actors, among them Andrew Mack, Chauncey Alcott, and Busico himself, made fortunes appearing in them. An influence also to be taken into account is that of Irish songs, once in great vogue. But such influences, like the larger matter of American borrowings from Anglo-Irish, remain to be investigated. So far as I have been able to discover, there is not a single article in print upon the subject. Here, as elsewhere, our philologists have wholly neglected a very interesting field of inquiry. From other languages, the borrowings during the period of growth were naturally less. Down to the last decades of the 19th century, the overwhelming majority of immigrants were either Germans or Irish. The Jews, Italians, and Slavs were yet to come. But the first Chinese appeared in 1848, and soon their speech began to contribute its inevitable loanwords. These words, of course, were first adopted by the miners of the Pacific Coast, and a great many of them have remained California localisms, among them such verbs as to yen, to desire strongly, as a Chinaman desires opium, and to flop-flop, to lie down, and such nouns as fun, a measure of weight. But a number of others have got into the common speech of the whole country. Example, fantan, kowtow, chop suey, ginseng, joss, yokami, and tong. Contrary to the popular opinion, dope and hop are not from the Chinese. Neither, in fact, is an Americanism, though the former has one meaning that is specially American, i.e. that of information or formula, as in racing dope and to dope out. Most etymologists derive the word from the Dutch dupe, a sauce. In English, as in American, it signifies a thick liquid, and hence the viscous cooked opium. Hop is simply the common name of the humulus lupulus. The belief that hops have a soporific effect is very ancient, and hop pillows were brought to America by the first English colonists. The derivation of poker, which came into American from California in the days of the gold rush, has puzzled etymologists. It is commonly derived from primero, the name of a somewhat similar game popular in England 
in the 16th century, but the relation seems rather fanciful. It may possibly come, indirectly, from the Danish word poker, signifying the devil. Pokerish, in the sense of alarming, was a common adjective in the United States before the Civil War. Thornton gives an example dated 1827. Shield de Vere says that poker, in the sense of a hobgoblin, was still in use in 1871, but he derives the name of the game from the French poche, push, pocket. He seems to believe that the bank or pool in the early days was called the poke. Barrea and Leyland, rejecting all these guesses, derive poker from the Yiddish poker, which comes in turn from the verb pochgen, signifying to conceal winnings or losses. This pochgen is obviously related to the German pocher, boaster, braggart. There were a good many German Jews in California in the early days, and they were ardent gamblers. If Barrea and Leyland are correct, then poker enjoys the honor of being the first loan word taken into American from the Yiddish. End of chapter 3, part 4. Recording by Linda Johnson.